At the end of the day, I sort of come home and I'm not one of those people that sort of carries their characters. You know, I come home, put the children to bed and like watch Love is Blind. I'm Carly Zakin. And I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to 9 to 5-ish with The Skin. We've run into so many questions over the years and had so many moments where we needed advice and we got it from women who'd been there. And that's what we're bringing you with this show. Each week, we're helping you get what you want out of your career by talking to the smartest leaders we know. Because we know your work life is a lot more than nine to five. All right, let's get into it. Hi, everyone. Today, our guest is Oscar-nominated actress Carrie Mulligan. Carrie got her start on screen in the film Pride and Prejudice and has starred in other major period piece films like An Education and The Great Gatsby. More recently, Carrie starred in the film She Said, where she plays one of the New York Times reporters who helps break the paper story on Harvey Weinstein. And now Carrie's taking her talents beyond the film industry as she hosts the horror fiction podcast, I Hear Fear, which you can listen to exclusively on Amazon Music. Carrie, welcome to 9 to 5-ish. Hello. Thanks for having me. We are so excited to have you. Um, So first of all, I just saw the movie. It's fantastic. And I'm so excited for our audience to hopefully see it soon. And it's a story that we've talked about a lot on this show. Um, We've had Jodi and Megan on a few times. um, So just really excited to to kind of get your perspective and hear more about you. And we're going to jump in with our lightning round to learn a little bit more about you. Are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Okay. What was a childhood nickname that you had? Care Bear. (laughs) That's cute. What's the hardest accent you've had to learn? Oh gosh. Northern, like, like a Lancashire accent, like talk like that. Like, oh God, it's so bad even doing it now, but yeah, a Northern. (laughs) I played um, the daughter of the prime minister and we were all from Lancashire. It was terrible. Are you an email person, a texter or phone call? I'm a WhatsApper. Wow. Okay. Wasn't expecting that. Yeah. I feel like that's very European of you. Is it? Yes. Well, I don't know. I feel like it is that in my head. I think I feel like I'm held accountable by the double tick thing where I have to respond because I know that they know that I've read it. I think it's like it's a sign if you have a lot of international friends and family. Yes. Yeah, that's really true. What is the first job you got paid for? I was a cleaner. I got paid to clean like doctor's offices. So our next question um, is actually really personal to us as as two women who didn't learn to drive until we were in our 30s. So we heard that you, Carrie, failed your road test five times. I think there's nothing wrong with that. I support your perseverance. Thank you. But how did you celebrate when you finally passed? I will say that the four other times I failed, I was incredibly heavily pregnant. So I did two both times I was nine months pregnant. And every time my husband showed up with like a bottle of champagne at the end. Oh my God. <laughs> and, and then meekly put it back into the bonnet of the car. <laughs> I can't remember what I, I think it was like, it was just so ridiculous by that point. I was just delighted to be able to, I don't think I even told people. I just sort of cracked on because it was, it had become so embarrassing. But yeah, I'm just delighted. Are you a good driver now? Yes. Do you like it? Because I love it now. I do. Yeah, I do. And we also live in the countryside. So you kind of have to be able to drive. Otherwise, you're stranded. 
You have this new podcast, I Hear Fear, which sounds right up our alley. What is your favorite episode? There's an episode called The Curse, I think it's called The Cursed Movie Set. We put it into my voice, basically. They're all stories that are sort of based on myths or real life events that have happened in the past. And this one was about a kind of cursed movie set that actually turned out to be something quite different. And we thought it would be fun if we made it like a sort of unknown film that I'd done at the beginning of my career that went straight to DVD sort of thing. So that one is sort of me being me, narrating the story and playing myself, imagining this incredibly messed up film that I was once a part of. Do you have a go-to karaoke song? I would do anything for love by Meatloaf. Oh, that was a quick answer. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) There's there's literally that and everything I do, I do it for you by Brian Adams, but that's, that's, those are the two. So we know you are in a musical family. Your husband is Marcus Mumford, who leads one of my favorite bands, Mumford and Sons. What is your favorite Mumford song to sing? Oh, I was put on this very funny radio show a couple of years ago where they they would play a line from one of his songs and I'd have to finish the line and I couldn't do any of them. (laughs) Um, I guess to sing along to, I think it's like, I will wait probably or the cave. It's fun to be in a room full of people swearing really loudly. So the cave's quite fun. Yeah, any either of those two. I will say I will wait as one of my favorite songs and it is the song that turns on my like on my phone when I plug it into my car and it's like the song you know every time you like plug it in you're like that's always the same song. Yeah. Today I was on a a conference call with Danielle and some of our team and it came on and I couldn't get it off so it was it was good prep oh, no. for this interview. <laughs> um so what is one thing that you do before you take on a new challenge? Oh, I, I, I'm awful. I don't, I don't, I'm a real kind of leave it till the very last minute kind of person. You know, I had to write a program the other day. We're doing our annual fundraiser for this charity that we work with, Marcus and I. And the program had to go to the printers like last night at six o'clock. And I wrote my piece that was going in the program at like 5.35. So I'm not, I'm not someone who does preparation or lots of sort of I kind of have to be under the gun I think to to get things done I feel that I mean at the end of the day you got it in so I got it in it was fine it worked out yeah yeah and actually probably better than if I'd thought about it too much maybe maybe I don't know so Carrie I want to hear how you started out you've been vocal about not getting in to acting school being rejected from them when you were young. How did you start to learn the ropes? So I, yeah, I didn't get into drama school and I was desperate to, that was sort of all I wanted to do. I ended up in a, in my gap year, sort of a year after I finished school and I was probably going to head to university at that point and study drama, but not sort of acting, not go to an acting school. And I was working in a pub and I was a runner at a film studio and I, I wrote to this, to Julian Fellows, who was a, who was a screenwriter who wrote Gosford Park. He won the Oscar for writing Gosford Park. And I had met him at my school. He'd come to give a talk and I wrote to him and I said, you're the only actor I've ever met. Would you have any advice for someone who's sort of got no idea of how to get into the industry or whatever? So he took me out for dinner with his wife and about maybe 10 other people who'd probably written very similar letters. 
And we talked a lot about, I mean, I went, you know, they sort of directed me towards this workshop, this sort of acting kind of group, which was one of the first times that I really acted with men or with boys because I'd gone to an all girls school. So I had always sort of played the boys myself. And then at the same time, they said, you know, there's this casting director, Gina Jay, and her, her assistant, Robin, is meeting young actresses to play the kind of younger sisters in Pride and Prejudice, this new Pride and Prejudice that's happening. And we can get you into the room with him. So I went and auditioned for Robin and did an audition to play Kitty in Pride and Prejudice. And, and that was the first film I ended up doing. I love, love that story. I also love that movie. We talk so much on the show about networking. Mm. And so when you look back at how pivotal that moment was for you and, and really jumpstarting your career, what is your takeaway? What do you say to the student who reaches out to you and are like, you're the only actor I've ever met? What, what, how do you look back on that? Yeah, my sort of plan was, well, I'll go to university and I'll do drama and then maybe I'll try and like getting behind the scenes or I didn't, I just was sort of trying to figure I knew I really wanted to be an actor and I knew that actually studying the theory of things probably wouldn't ultimately be what I would end up doing. But I just sort of, yeah, I, I, I often say to like, you know, younger people who say all I can imagine doing in my life is acting. I'm like, well, just write letters to people. You know, you never know who, I mean, the truth is that people write letters very sweetly to me and I just don't have anything to offer because I'm not a writer or a director or, a, you know, but I think it's, it, you just never know if someone, there might be like this this opportunity with Robin and Gina Jay and Casting and Pride and Prejudice was like, they are looking for specifically for sort of non-actors. Joe Wright, who was the director, wanted people who had not been an actor because he wanted it to feel real and not sort of like acting. He wanted this whole household of the Bennett family to feel very real. So that was sort of bizarrely lucky. I mean, the whole thing is luck. That's the truth of it. And that's the other thing that I say is there is like ridiculous luck involved in this job in general. But I do think being really enthusiastic and writing letters and sort of knocking down doors can help. How did you, knowing that like that kind of opened the door for you, how did you start thinking about networking and building your network um, either with other actors or, or with kind of just in the industry? I suppose I sort of fell into, in that sense, you know, the casting director on that job sent my tape to my agent, who's still my agent now, and she started representing me then. And I think for the first couple of years, I wasn't thinking, I was thinking more, well, maybe I'll still go to drama school. And I was thinking, you know, my idea of acting had always been acting in the theatre. I was sort of, that was my idea of, I wasn't a cinephile by any means. I wasn't kind of looking to be a screen actor. I kind of wanted to be on stage. I originally wanted to be a musical theatre actor. <laughs> so I was desperate to sort of be in musicals. And then I figured out in my teen years that I didn't, I wasn't quite a natural singer and I really can't dance. But I was really, that was the theatre was sort of where I thought I was headed. And so I think for the first couple of years, I kind of had the privilege of just getting to play supporting parts in things where there was no pressure on me but I was also surrounded by incredible British character actors and veteran theatre actors and screen actors. And my first job was Donald Sutherland and Judy Dench and Brenda Blethyn and these extraordinary actors. So I got to sort of watch and learn. I was less sort of thinking about the next steps and just sort of going from job to job, just kind of trying to figure out how to build my confidence within it because also not getting into drama school and landing a job. I did spend the first sort of four or five years feeling really unqualified to do what I was doing. 
that kind of leads me into a, a next line of questioning, which is feeling unqualified because you didn't necessarily have like the same kind of education credentials that you had set out looking for is something I think a, a lot of people can feel in, in a variety of careers. And yet you also had enough chutzpah in a sense to, to put yourself out there and, and ask people what they were doing. One question we get asked all the time is like, how do you strike up a conversation with that ask? Any advice for for people? Is there something that you like think about or kind of psych yourself up when you want to connect with someone or going back to those days when you were just starting out? Were you nervous? Oh, yeah, all the time. I mean, I, I all the time nervous. I think generally just honesty has been really kind of a big key in those conversations. I remember pitching myself incredibly hard to Steve McQueen <laughs> to play this character in Shame, Sissy. And I ended up getting the job, but I could tell in the first meeting that he was not, I don't know, I, I felt like I didn't have him. It was nothing like anything I'd done before. I had done an education. I'd done lots of British period dramas. I'd played kind of nice girls. And, and then suddenly there was this character that was completely off the rails and extremely troubled and completely uninhibited. And the first and only time I've ever been naked on screen and all of this stuff. And I read it and I just fell in love with it. And I, I remember in the meeting sort of, I kind of threw everything at it. And I was like, I just know, like, I've got it and I can do it. I know that if you sort of, you know, so I was just, and then he tried, you know, he was sort of like really lovely and sweet and then sort of like ended the meeting. And so I said, where, where, are, you, where are you off to now? And he went Soho. And I was like, oh, I'm going to Soho. Let's share a taxi. So then we hopped in the taxi and, you know, I continued my kind of, well, I really think I can do yeah. it, Steve. I really think, you know. I love um, that move. Yeah. We've done it as well. Chase people. <laughs> Just chase people. And then they can't say no. <laughs> are you are you a shy person? Yeah. I, I mean, I think I'm more confident now. I used to be incredibly shy. And I used to be kind of awkward. And I think I felt the most comfortable within acting. I didn't, I wasn't massively comfortable at school. But I feel within the making of the thing, I've always felt sort of... I felt like I built in confidence through my 20s within the release of the film and the press and all that stuff. It's taken a really long time to not feel super shy and weird. Because I think, I mean, the reason I ask is like the moments that you're talking about that like really were game changers in your trajectory, for lack of a better word, they require a lot of balls, right? Like you're saying like, oh, I'm going to Soho too. I'll get in the cab. And I think, well, different circumstances, Danielle and I like definitely relate to those moments of trying to muster that confidence to network when you've got that one shot. And I think a lot of people listening, you know, might say like, you know, well, I'm, that's not my personality. How can I like do that? I, that would feel so awkward. And I'm just curious as you look back now feeling more confident in who you are today, like how do you think back around how you mustered through that? It's funny because I would go, I remember going to a wedding with Marcus when I was pregnant and and it was a wedding where I didn't know very many people at all. And they had done this sort of very British thing of, because we'd been married for a few years, they split us up and they put him on one table on one side of the room. By the way, that's my nightmare. It's a nightmare. And, and I was put on the far other side of the, the room and I cried. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. I was 
sitting next to people I didn't know. That's cruel. I literally was standing looking at the table list like in tears. Oh my God. And Marcus had to sort of like try and sort of introduce me to people before we sat down for supper so that I wouldn't just spend the whole meal like completely terrified. So, you know, it's sort of not really in my nature either, but in that sense, but I think when it came to work and I felt like I had no, there was no other route. It was sort of, it's like Q&A for she said at a university the other day and one of the students said like, I want to be an actor and what's your piece of advice? And I said, well, is there anything else on the planet you can imagine yourself doing? And he said, no. And I was like, well, that's kind of all I have because if there is, then do that. With acting, I think it has to be the only thing you can imagine yourself doing. Otherwise, bearing all of the rejection and all of the stuff, it's not worth it. So in those moments, I think I just thought, well, there's literally nothing to lose and maybe I'll never see see this person again in my life. And if I don't get the gig, then at least I know I threw everything at it and, you know, tried. You have a a reputation amongst your fans as being just a chill person, like a real person, super grounded, all the good things. And you've spoken about how many of your friends aren't in the same industry as you. How do you get support? When we talk about careers and, and growing in them, especially in super competitive ones, you know, Carly and I feel kind of this push and pull where you want to be around people who kind of know what it's like. And at the same time, when you have all of that pressure and you kind of want people that aren't in the day-to-day at all, what have you found to be helpful? Yeah, I think I have like a mixture, you know, I have my best friends from when I was 14 at school. Um, and Moff, who's one of my best friends, she's an illustrator. So she's sort of an artist, but it's different. I don't know. I, I feel like, you know, also I'm married to an artist. We do different things, but there's still moments where he goes through sort of similar pressures. But I think generally I separate the work and the home life quite a lot. And so I find that it is nice to have actor friends like Zoe Kazan, who's in She Said With Me, I've known for 14 years. We met on stage and we've been best friends ever since. So, you know, she's someone that 100% when it comes to anything to do with, I mean, I, I've often sent her things, scripts to read to ask her if she thinks it's, you know, something that's a good idea to do, or we've talked about things that we've encountered at work. But at the end of the day, I sort of come home and I'm not one of those people that sort of carries their characters. You know, I come home, put the children to bed and like watch Love is Blind and, you know, I kind of come. Carrie, you're really speaking my language today. We could like not drive together and watch Love is Blind. (laughs) Okay, perfect. Um, Yeah, just sort of separation, you know, separation of the two things. Well, I was actually, I'm I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to ask you, you know, when I think about some of my favorite films that you're in, and even she said most recently, you play these very multifaceted, nuanced characters and women that are in different ways, like holding the weight of the world on their shoulders. And I'm curious, like how you are able to kind of like literally deliver an artful performance where you so clearly like take this on and then also go home and stay sane. <laughs> like how, how do you create that, that boundary and that break? I think it's, it's, Probably more when I'm on stage, I think it's sort of more consuming. There's something about being in a play where you're doing it every night and you're saying the same words every night. It kind of takes over your brain a bit more. With film, I think I've been really lucky to work with directors and writers and actors that I really like and really trust. And so I find I, I, the reason that I've always loved all of it is that you 
sort of it's like being at summer camp whenever you make a thing whenever you make a play or a or a film you get to be around a group of people you're in a kind of extraordinary circumstance so you bond really fast and so you chat about everything and you know your makeup artist and your dresser and all the people you know that you spend time with you build these incredible connections and these bonds so quickly and I love that I love that part of it. And at the end of every job, I cry <laughs> inconsolably because I know that the likelihood is I won't see those people, some of them ever again, some of them for a little bit. Um, so I love that side of things. I find the harder scenes to shoot, the most cathartic and the most satisfying. So there's often days when I've done sort of, you know, I've spent eight hours just crying on set and I come home and I feel great. <laughs> I very much like take a hat off, like I'm wearing a hat of this person and at the end of the day I leave it in the trailer and go home. And Because it's also, there's, you know, it's everything's so much bigger than, than the job. You know, life is so much bigger than the job and I love it. It's the only thing in the world I can imagine doing, but I also love my family and being at home and all the great stuff on the other side of it. This season, we're talking about overcoming challenges with our guests. So we want to know, this is a really simple question. What's the single hardest thing you've done in your career? Or is there one role that has just been beyond a doubt the most challenging? Yeah, I did. Um, I did about four years ago, I did a monologue called Girls and Boys that we did at the Royal Court Theatre in London and then took to to New York. Um and it was just an hour and a half of me on stage. Um, and I was sort of telling the story about this woman and her life. And then it was sort of the curtain would come up and then I would act these scenes for these imaginary children. So you wouldn't hear obviously what the children were saying, but I was having full conversations and often disagreements and fights and playing with these two children that were just, that you couldn't see. And uh, for some, I've never, I mean, I've never had stage fright in a real way. And I, I still can't really distinguish whether it was stage fright or whether it was anxiety or whatever. But I, it took me until the first dress rehearsal to to be able to perform more than a page of the play. Until that point, they were ready to cancel the whole thing because every time I tried to do a run of the show, I would have a full panic and I'd hyperventilate and I'd sort of walk off stage. And it just took... I don't know what it was. I guess lots of meditation. They sent me to all sorts of doctors to try and see if they could calm me down. But eventually it got to the dress rehearsal and I got the most important people in my life to come and just sit in the audience and, and managed to make it halfway through the play. And then by the opening night, I could do the whole thing. And then I did it for six weeks in London and six weeks in New York. But that was a, that was a big, I don't know, it, it blindsided me like no kind of fear I'd had before. It was totally bizarre. I have, I'm like anxious listening to that and also like imagining like directors trying to be really nice and like, it's okay. And also like, oh my God, we have to cancel. What do you think that was? You've been on stage before. Like, why did that get you? There were two things. I think one of, one of it, the first thing is that, you know, it's a brilliant play by Dennis Kelly. And the first half of the play is really comedic. It's meant to be really funny. And when you read it, you laugh and and I think there was something in me that went, oh, I'm a, I'm a costume drama. No one thinks I'm funny. I'm going to just be, you know, I'm not going to be able to pull off a joke. I can't make people laugh. You know, all of the sort of self-doubt came in and I was like, well, this is going to be a disaster. <laughs> and then I, I found the sound of my own voice grating. I found 
the idea of being able to hold people's attention for 90 minutes on my own, I, just sort of the whole weight of it just came crashing down. And I thought this is, I'm just not interesting enough to watch for that amount of time. All of the self-doubt stuff just came in. And because there was no one else on stage to connect with, you know, it's such, doing theatre is so much, Bill Nye and I did this play about seven years ago called Skylight. And it's, it's almost a two-hander. There's one of the characters in the play, but the whole play is back and forth between the two of us. And if, every time I felt any kind of anxiety, I'd just look at Bill and Bill would kind of carry the play and I would, then I'd be all right. But with a monologue, it's just you. There's no one else to lift you or to give you a bit of confidence in your eyes. And I think it just, I just buckled, but I did do it and it was, and it ended up working and it was fine, but it was probably the closest I've ever come to kind of bailing on something completely. <laughs> One of the things that we have talked a lot about, both on this show, but also on other platforms, is the lack of paid family leave across this country and the crazy stories that women have and have shared of like when they've gone back to work in a full-time capacity post-welcoming a child into their family. And in preparing for this show, we saw that in 2015, you had to go on a press tour for your film, Suffragette. You opened up recently that you were actually going through postpartum depression at that time. When you look back at what you sort of somehow managed to, to do to sort of survive, how did that experience change you? How do you think about now, would you have done that again? Would you have shared with your, your bosses or whoever's organizing, you know, the tours, the studios, um, like, hey, I can't? Mm. It's interesting. I yeah, actually, it was like three and a half weeks from when I had my daughter before I was on my first like red carpet for that. And in that time, I was yeah, I sort of had been massively struggling. I was given a, a very easy out by everyone. Um, they said, you don't need to. They said, we can just can it all. So I have to say, I'm, you know, I was incredibly touched by that. Like, I was the lead of the film, but they across the board, I was I was given complete kind of freedom to bail on the whole thing if I wanted to. I think what struck me when I read She Said um, was that there was a real similarity between the way that Megan and I dealt with our postnatal depression because Megan similarly was sort of blindsided by postnatal depression when she had her daughter. And it was really Jodie's phone call to start talking to her about whether she wanted to come on board this investigation that was the sort of light that Megan grabbed onto and, and returning to the New York Times was part of what got her out of it. And I had a similar thing. I, I could have bailed on all of the suffragette stuff, but I also had, you know, it was something that I knew how to do. So I, it was something that I felt, oh, I know how to talk about this film. I think it matters. I was able to, you know, have the support around me doctors and my husband and my family and all the amazing people who were involved in the film who just sort of scooped me up and all I really had to do was put makeup on and show up to things so you know it's not like I had to go back and be a nurse in the hospital teaching a school it's a very different sort of you're required to do very little really but it kind of helped it really you know alongside lots of other things it kind of helped me and I kind of came out of it in those months of doing the, the press and so I, that was one of the first things that Meg and I talked about, that actually it was the work that we kind of clung on to to get us out of what was happening, not to escape it, but just to sort of like somehow it, it helped sort of make things at home feel better. We've got a listener question from Esther. She wants to know, 
As an actor, you likely have people who make assumptions about you when you're being cast for a role or when your movie hits theaters. How have you learned to handle that people will make assumptions and how have you learned to carry on? I think that's true. And I think people do. And I think I've probably tried to play against assumptions a lot. So chosen, and not just because I want to prove to be something else, but because I I don't enjoy playing the same people over and over again. I don't like telling the same story. So I am more interested in broadening that. And I think that that can play against assumptions. But at the same time, also, I just make assumptions about people. I think we all do. There's tons of people I've never met and I probably have made assumptions about and probably some of them are kind of unfair, but I think that's just part of life and I don't think you can spend too much time dwelling on it. I think if it's something that you do in your own life, you have to be particularly gracious about it. So yeah, I I think it's, you kind of can't spend too much time thinking about what other people think of you. And I definitely did not feel that way when I was younger, but I do a bit more now. Carrie, last question for us. Who else should we have on the show? Zoe Kazan. Oh, well, we would love to. So if you want to text your best friend, <laughs> tell I her will. to come on. A good word. Also, she's just, she's a genius. I mean, she's so smart and she's a wonderfully empathetic and fascinating person. So yeah, Zoe. Well, 100%. we would love to talk to her and congratulations on everything. And I'm really excited for this new podcast. I hear fear. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of 9 to 5-ish with Skim. A new episode will be in your feed again next Wednesday. In the meantime, check out our news podcast, Skim This. Every Thursday, we cover what you need to know each week in 30 minutes or less. And if you want to keep up with us in between episodes, follow us on Instagram at Carly and Danielle. It's a really good account, I promise.